Hello, Husky fans, and welcome to another episode of the UConn Pod. I'm Dan Madigan. I'm joined by fellow editor at the UConn blog, Dan Connolly. Uh, Aman Kidwai, our usual partner on this UConn pod, was unable to join today. We recorded a good chunk of the podcast uh, last night, but as we were getting ready to publish it onto the internet today, we received some breaking news from UConn that freshman Javante Brown has entered the transfer portal, according to ESPN's Jeff Borzello. So Brown was a seven-footer from Canada, uh, regarded as a four-star prospect and reclassified uh, from the class of 2021 to come to UConn early this year. So he did appear in two games this season. He scored four points in the season opener against CCSU uh, and then did not score in a game against DePaul. So he finishes his UConn career with, with two points and a rebound per game. Obviously, he was certainly a little bit of a project before, you know, and was part of UConn's longer term plans, not necessarily this season. Uh, but I was really impressed with the size and length and the coordination that he had, especially against Central. So, Dan, uh, definitely some shocking news this morning. What are your thoughts on Javante Brown's decision to transfer? Yeah, I was obviously very surprised about it as well. I think just something kind of important to keep in mind here was that, you know, he hadn't played a whole lot, but that was kind of the plan. He reclassified from the 2021 class into 2020 to come to UConn this year, kind of similar to what we saw Richie Springs do uh, last year. And, you know, there were talks about him possibly redshirting this year before the NCAA came out and gave all winter athletes an extra year. So it would be kind of pointless to redshirt him at that point. Yeah, it's just surprising to see a freshman leave this quickly and the timing feels a little weird too it's not at the end of the semester it's not you know at a time where he could possibly land at another school I guess he still could potentially but you know we just haven't gotten a whole lot of extra info about it and it's just it it's not what you want you don't want freshmen transferring out before the end of their first season especially someone with Javante Brown's length and athleticism, just because from what we've seen from Dan Hurley and his staff is they're very capable of developing basketball players pretty much. I mean, I don't think there's a guy that you can look at who's played under Hurley for an entire season that hasn't dramatically improved by the end of the year. So it's a shame. And hopefully we get a little more information at some point about why. Yeah. And, you know, later on in this podcast, we talk at length about how much big men like Adama Sanogo, uh, Isaiah Whaley, Josh Carlton. Um, some of those big men have improved just over the course of a year or two, let alone, you know, their entire UConn career. So it's definitely frustrating because I thought Brown was a really interesting prospect and someone that could have turned into an absolute monster in the post. And uh, maybe he will. It just will likely be with another school. Um, an important thing to note is that uh, this hasn't been necessarily confirmed by UConn yet, but the transfer portal is open to anyone in the NCAA, so anyone with access can see it. So he is in the portal. He may end up potentially not transferring, but I would say more often than not, when players enter the portal, they decide to go somewhere else. So definitely some some interesting news to start uh, the kind of second half of the season, going into the, the second semester of school, uh, and just, you know, roughly a little more than 24 hours notice ahead of UConn's game against Butler. Yeah. And I think there's been some speculation that maybe it has to do with 
you know, the NCAA giving everyone that extra year, that could mean that maybe someone like Isaiah Whaley is coming back or Josh Carlton. I don't really know if Tyler Polly returning would affect what Javante Brown does just because they don't play the same position. But if I, Isaiah Whaley is going to come back and then you've got Samson Johnson coming in too. And, you know, the step that Adama Sanogo will probably take by this time next year, there's really not a whole lot of playing time to go around in that post for UConn. So maybe he just saw the writing on the wall or those decisions on who's returning were finalized. Again, it kind of feels early for something like that to be decided, but just it's hard to figure out another reason. Um, but I do believe that later tonight, Dan Hurley is supposed to be talking to the media. We'll see if that happens and if Hurley has anything to say about it. So that'll be something to watch. Yeah, definitely worth keeping an eye on. Um, I haven't seen a lot of transfers during the Hurley era, um, you know, outside of some of the when the old regime uh, was kind of working their way out. Dan, what, I'm drawing a blank here. Were there any transfers off the top of top of your head that you can think of? Well, Quinn Williams got banished uh, back to Alaska. So I, there was that. And then in, I, I don't think there's been, are we missing it? I don't think there's been any other transfers, but I know at URI, one of the big things about his program was, I only think like one or two guys ever transferred while he was the head coach at URI too. So it's really pretty rare for one of Hurley's players to transfer historically UConn and URI. I I can't speak to Wagner, so I don't know there. So that just adds another level of surprise to it all. Yeah. And, you know, transferring is common now, right? This isn't a knock, you know, players are free to go wherever they think is their best opportunity. Um, But if this is truly the first real transfer, uh, under in the Dan Hurley era at UConn, it is interesting giving the timing. So right now there's not a lot of information out there like we discussed, but we will continue to post updates over at the UConn blog and on Twitter uh, and on Facebook. So be sure to follow us there if you haven't already and enjoy the rest of the podcast. Dan, I think we should just get right into it. The UConn women's basketball team had a big matchup planned for Thursday against number six Baylor. Uh, but unfortunately, like this messy season has been, Uh, The game was canceled due to Kim Mulkey, the Lady Bears head coach, testing positive for COVID-19. So, Dan, what are your thoughts on this whole cancellation and and how it affects UConn and the rest of the season? Yeah, it just sucks because it's happened to UConn all season long where, you know, Gino obviously always schedules a very tough non-conference slate with some of the best teams in the country. And at the start of the year, they had games against Mississippi state who was in the top 10 before the season, Louisville, who was in the top 10 and Baylor all lined up. And all three of those games have gotten canceled either because of a UConn positive test, or as you just mentioned, Kim Mulkey's positive test. So they just can't get one of these big time opponents in there. And it's just, it's got to be frustrating for them because, you know, they've only played one ranked opponent this year and it was DePaul and they beat DePaul pretty easily as they always do. They always handle DePaul with ease really for the last 10 years, only one or two games have been particularly close. So they just haven't had a challenge and haven't been able to show if they're, you know, a really good team or just a good team. Like, and I, I, on our women's basketball podcast, Chasing Perfection, I made this comparison where last season, I also felt like we didn't really have a great sense of how good that team was because 
the three best teams they played were the three best teams in the country that very few teams beat and were pretty much regarded as the only three teams that were legitimate contenders for the national championship. They didn't really play anyone at their level in the rest of the top 10. The only other ranked opponent they played that year, again, was DePaul and maybe Tennessee was ranked in the late twenties when they played them at the Excel center too. So, you know, when that season got canceled because of COVID, I still don't really know how good that team was just because we didn't really ever see it. So, you know, hopefully we'll get a better sense this year because there's still a non-conference game with Tennessee who is receiving votes. UConn should still handle them pretty well, but then South Carolina, also one of the better teams in the country is on the schedule. So it just sucks not having, you know, one of those big matchups that we always wait for every year. And also just to have it happen so soon before the game, it was, you know, I think less than 72 hours before the game was supposed to tip off, if not sooner. So it's like, as has been the case all season long, it just sucks. Yeah. And I, you know, nothing is a definite anymore with the way things are going. Um, in the, the way things can change so quickly uh, due to COVID-19. But Dan, you know, that game against Tennessee on January 21st, although the Lady Vols aren't what they used to be as a program, still a highly anticipated game, uh, but it's at, it's in Knoxville. Uh, UConn men's or women's basketball hasn't played a non-conference game outside of the state of Connecticut yet this season. What do you think the odds are of that game and the South Carolina game, which is at Gamble, actually end up being played? I was on the record before the season started saying that I don't actually think any of those non-conference games were going to happen. My theory was that the Big East was going to eventually move to all conference play and, and outlaw, and I guess is the right word, non-conference play. That hasn't happened. I still kind of have a hard time seeing either of those games happen just because of how tenuous the season is and, you know, just looking at the entire state of where the virus is in the country, things are probably just only going to be getting worse and worse. And I think it's fair to wonder if, you know, we're even going to get to those games with a season intact with, you know, Duke canceling its season and Duke might not be the powerhouse that they used to be in women's basketball and their women's program may not have the same stature and pull of their men's program, but I think it's still extremely significant that, that Duke has canceled its season for women's basketball. And then one of UConn's former conference mates, SMU, they also put an end to their season. So I don't think those are going to be the first or the last two teams to do that. You know, I don't think it's a hundred percent chance those games don't happen, but if I was betting, they, it just, I mean, I guess in general, it doesn't seem likely that any games at all are really going to happen. But in particular, those non-conference games, it just seems pretty unlikely to me, at least. Yeah, I agree. I think there's just a lot of moving parts, and especially with the Connecticut Department of Public Health um, having a, a rule. I don't think it's set in stone, but it's definitely something they're trying to enforce, where if a team tests positive, um, they would strongly prefer and usually will not allow UConn to play against that team within a 14 day span. Uh, we've seen that a few times with the, with the men's games uh, already this season. So it'll be interesting to keep an eye on that as we get deeper into conference play. Uh, looking at the women's basketball schedule, they're back in action January 9th on Saturday at home against Providence. 
and the Seton Hall game um, was just added on the schedule to replace a game against Xavier on the 13th. So UConn will play the Pirates again, this time at home uh, in Gamble Pavilion. And that game was just added this early this week, yesterday, Dan? That was early. Well, at the day of recording on Thursday, that was earlier today. So that just ah. came through. All the days have blended together because time truly doesn't matter. I'm sorry, Dan. Uh, it's no, it stopped existing a long time ago. Agreed. If you're interested in more women's basketball news, highly recommend checking out our sister podcast, Chasing Perfection, which also runs through the through the UConn Pod channel. Is that correct, Dan, or a different channel? Nope, it's all through the same. So if you subscribe to the UConn Pod on you know iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon you're going to get both podcasts anyway. So we go a lot more into it's me and our other women's basketball writer, Megan Gower. We go more in depth into the Baylor cancellation, kind of look at what the implications are for UConn in a, a just a deeper look. And then the NCAA tournament implications. And then we also, you know, just dive more in depth into the women's basketball team there than we do on this podcast where we kind of just hit it on the surface level. So go check that out. If you want more women's basketball talk. Yes, and also be sure to subscribe to the UConn Women's Basketball Weekly. Uh, that's Dan's weekly women's UConn Women's Basketball newsletter through Substack in your inbox every morning, th- every Thursday morning. Um, one of my favorite things to read during the week, so highly recommend you check that out as well. So unfortunately, even though we're wrapping up our women's basketball segment here, we can't escape COVID-19 as it's time to talk men's hockey. And unfortunately, the program was shut down with a positive COVID-19 test within the program. Uh, Dan, what do you have for us on that? Yeah, UConn was supposed to play two games this weekend against Northeastern. First game was supposed to actually be today on Thursday at 3.30, and then they'd go up to Northeastern on Saturday to play. But, you know, it was last night, Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, so it was really less than 24 hours. Is that less than 18 hours? It was a very short time before that puck was supposed to hit the ice that the game got canceled. UConn said that it was a member of the program that tested positive. You know, we don't have any deeper information on that, but just from reading the tea leaves and kind of the other announcements that UConn sent out about programs pausing, it seems like they say member of the program when it's not a player that tests positive. So that would be just my completely uneducated, speculated guess that it wasn't a player. And, you know, just kind of looking at the state of campus right now, there's no other students on campus. I'm pretty sure most of the other, or most of the players on the team are living in Garrigus on campus in one dorm. And the only ones that are, uh, I don't even know if how many other athletes are even in there. I think the we're going to talk about this in a bit, but the soccer ones are back, but it doesn't appear like it would be any of them that tested positive that, you know, could have transmitted it. So it probably was a non-player, but you never know what these things don't really want to speculate too heavily on that, but it just, it sucks because, you know, hockey's has gotten off to a really, well, I say they've gotten off to a really horrible start they're like a month and a half into where they were supposed to be on their schedule. Their season was supposed to start November 25th and they still have one program BU who hasn't played a game. They just, they've pretty much thrown out the original schedule that they had at the start of the season and are just working week by week 
And UConn was one of the few teams that's been able to play on a consistent basis and has been available to play, even if they haven't played on every single weekend, even though they might've had some issues in the preseason from what Kavanaugh said, they've, it's just finally caught up to them in the regular season. So, you know, it's pretty much inevitable. I think every single sports team in the country that's playing through this pandemic is bound to shut down at this point, just because of how the numbers are and the way the virus works. So just hopefully whoever tested positive is asymptomatic and they stay that way and it doesn't spread and they're able to get back on the ice soon. But, you know, it just, it's tough that it's so hard to play games and UConn's had a really hard time scheduling games. They've only played one weekend series that they were supposed to play at the beginning of the year. No, two. They've played two series, but even still, it's not a great mark. So it's just tough to see them get postponed that soon before a game. And hopefully they'll be on the ice sooner rather than later. Yeah. And Dan, that's what makes this so tricky, right? It's just because, uh, of the way things move, things, you know, obviously move very fast in terms of what we know about the virus, what the protocols are for when someone has the virus, uh, you know, quarantine periods, et cetera. We don't necessarily know when the hockey team will get back on the ice. When the men's basketball team first tested positive, they were out cold for 14 days um, with, with no practicing or anything from what I understand. The second time around, they were able to quarantine for seven days, I believe. And then they were able to practice in a modified way, which involved, you know, everyone wearing masks the whole time uh, and following a bunch of other protocols to practice for a few days in that quarantine window and then be able to play a game. So we, from what I understand, Dan, we don't have any information yet from UConn about when the Huskies will get back on the ice. Um, I'm sure they'll announce it when they've already done so, or they feel it's safe to do so. Um, But I think it's safe to say it'll probably be at least a week before they practice and probably at least 10 to 14 days before they play any other opponents. Yeah. And just to add to that time frame, when women's basketball shut down, they sat out for 10 days and then were able to resume practice and played, uh, I think before or just after their 14 day window would have expired had they not started earlier than expected. So yeah, the school announcement just said that it's dependent on contact tracing and further testing. So I think it really just depends on how much it spreads, if it spreads at all. And then of course, always when it's deemed safe to return by health professionals. So yeah, I, I, as much as I'm usually tuned into what's happening with the men's hockey program, I don't actually have anything to add there. And it's really just, we'll wait and see pretty much. Yep. Yeah. And it's, it's totally understandable given the way uh, things, things change and how things can move. So, um, you know, hopefully we'll see them back on the ice sooner rather than later. Yeah, for sure. Um, And if you want some more in-depth hockey coverage, we also have a, a lot of UConn men's hockey coverage on the UConn blog, but we also have a, premium spot for men's hockey coverage, the UConn Hockey Hub. You can find it linked in a lot of our things. We have a podcast there, a newsletter that goes out once a week, uh, in-depth previews, various different stories as well. So a lot of stuff there for UConn hockey fans. And I may be biased, but I think it's worth checking out. 
yeah, and it's definitely worth checking out. Definitely a quality read, a lot of good content in there week in and week out. And to make it easy for all of our great listeners, we'll be sure to put those links to both Chasing Perfection and the Yukon Hockey Hub in the article uh, and in the podcast description. So with COVID-19 canceling the fall sports season for UConn, uh, two, two fall sports teams, or usually fall sports teams, the men's and women's soccer teams are getting underway with some competition this spring. So Connolly, what do you have for us for some updates on what that looks like for this season? Yeah, so I had honestly kind of forgotten about both the soccer teams when fall sports were canceled and by the Big East and you know, it seemed like that was kind of the end and we'd see them again in 2021 in the fall. But when the Big East did make that announcement, they said that there was the possibility that they could play in the spring. And now from everything that I've heard and everything that's been posted, it does actually seem like there might be a spring season, both in the NCAA and for UConn, both their soccer teams. So both the teams on social media have posted that they've opened training camp. Women's soccer started on Thursday. Men's soccer started on Wednesday. And I think it's just really exciting because, you know, as much as, at least for me personally, as much as I enjoy the basketball teams and cover women's basketball and hockey and follow them all very closely from my time as a student at UConn, I actually really, really enjoyed getting into both the soccer teams. I covered the women's soccer team very closely, was actually a member of the team as a practice player, not to brag for a little bit, and then was very involved with the goal patrol for men's soccer. So I'm very excited for both of them that they have a chance to, you know, finally open their brand new shining stadium that they've been working hard for to get open for a long time. It, from all the photos I've seen and the couple times I've driven by, it looks absolutely fantastic. And, you know, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that it might be a nicer stadium than Dillon Stadium in Hartford that just reopened for Hartford Athletics. So I honestly don't know much about what the men's soccer team stands at this moment, just because they always have a lot of roster turnover every year and usually bring in a lot of transfers. And there just hasn't been a whole lot of information to come out of that program for women's soccer. I'm a little more tuned in and I know that. So this is Mag's second season as head coach, Margaret Rodriguez, the head coach that replaced Len Santiris, the recruiting class that came in last year, was pretty much just 100% everything was recruited by Mag. She didn't have her assistant coaches in, in place when that happened. She just pretty much did all that legwork by herself. So this year's freshman class that's coming in, which is hard to believe in her third year, is the first class recruited by her entire coaching staff. So from the couple of times I've talked to her, she's really, really excited about this group. I know that they have a very good or a very promising goal scorer coming in that could be their starting forward. They're hoping that they're going to score a lot of goals. And I think UConn's got a very solid kind of core of players. You know, they had a pretty decent back line last year. Their goaltender, Randy Palacios was pretty phenomenal. They've got a lot of different pieces, but you know, especially in college soccer, you need someone that's going to find the back of the net. And they've been lacking that ever since Rachel Hill and Steph Ribeiro graduated in 2016. So they believe that this freshman, Jada Bedoya, I know it's kind of tough for the program these last few years with the way they've dipped 
having been a historically one of the best programs in college soccer, but you know, it seems to slowly be building and it'll be really interesting if they do manage to play the season to see what kind of step that they can take and how much this freshman class is going to help and how much, you know, everyone else that's been in the program is going to benefit as well. So it's, I'm just really excited to have uh, some Olympic sports back for UConn. And then it looks like UConn baseball is also going to not only be playing its year, but have a really good team. We don't need to get too in depth into UConn baseball coverage in early January, but they'll also be able to finally open their new stadium, Elliott ballpark, which from the photos I've seen, it might be one of the best ballparks in the country for, you know, the program that it serves. So it should be a really exciting spring for UConn as always with the qualifier that as long as everyone stays healthy. Yeah. I mean, it, it'll be great that, you know, assuming everyone can stay healthy that these student athletes where, you know, the baseball team was kind of snake bit by the, the early onslaught of, you know, COVID um, the men's and soccer men's and women's soccer teams were kind of hit with the canceled fall season. So it'll be good for the, I'm sure, you know, those student athletes are very excited to get out and play. And, and one last thing before we wrap up, this segment, I, Dan, I know there's always been a, a movement within collegiate soccer to push from the fall to the spring. And I think that's something that not a lot of people necessarily, well, I'll, I'll be honest, I don't necessarily understand why. So can you maybe explain what the, you know, what the goal is behind moving from the fall to the spring season? And do you think this fallout from COVID is kind of the catalyst to maybe making this happen sooner rather than later? Well, it's not so much as moving the season from the fall to the spring. It's more of extending the season into the spring, because when you look at college soccer, it's really kind of on an island by itself in the world of soccer. It doesn't follow, you know, the FIFA sanctioned rules. It has unlimited substitutes for the most part. It uses a clock that counts down instead of counts up. There's no extra time. So when the clock hits zero, that's the end of the game. It still uses overtime golden goals, which were eliminated eliminated by FIFA a long time ago. There's a lot of, lot of, lot of aspects of college soccer that don't mesh with, you know, I guess FIFA sanctioned soccer. So one of the biggest issues that coaches have with college soccer is that it's such a compressed season. Every single team is playing two games a week and you know, it's really not a long season. You basically get 10 home games. If you don't make the NCAA tournament and you start in, you know, maybe early August and you run all the way to November is when the conference tournaments begin. So you have two months of games that you're playing. So, you know, think about all the other college sports, basketball that starts in November and ends in March hockey that starts in October and ends in March. So those are all very extended baseball, February to, you know, May and June, even July, if you get to the college world series, coaches have always been concerned that it's a lot on the players' bodies. And they feel that if you could extend it, to the spring and have a longer season and only play once a week, maybe with some midweek games mixed in like the professional ranks do, it would allow for it to be a higher quality of soccer. The players could develop more and you could align it closer to what the global soccer world views as soccer instead of, you know, what college soccer is now, which is, I guess, an Americanized version of the sport and not in a good way, if that makes sense. 
No, that's interesting. And I think when you compare it to how the other collegiate sports seasons are run, it certainly makes a lot of sense. I know when I covered the men's soccer team, it was certainly something where, you know, they're playing a lot of games in a short amount of time, bouncing between covering those games and watching, you know, the premier league uh, or, or the MLS. It, there's a lot of weird little quirks, like you said, that, that make it kind of hard to follow. So I think uh, that'd be interesting to see it kind of stand, be standardized across the board. Yeah. I mean, I am very much in favor of moving it to a longer season. I think it's better for the student athletes. It's, you know, just better for the product. I actually do think some of the college soccer rules are maybe better than the FIFA sanctioned rules, but, you know, I think it's better to kind of align it with what the rest of the world is doing. So yeah, hopefully this is going to be a good trial run for college soccer. I know one of the bigger issues with pushing it into the spring is that the American professional soccer season starts in the early spring. So you're kind of conflicting it with these student athletes that are trying to move on to the next level. You know, not a ton of college players go to MLS, but the United Soccer League, the second and third divisions, a lot of them do go there. So it makes it a little trickier with that, but you know, I, I still think overall it's a better system and I'm not the one that's in charge of figuring out how to make it work, but I do think something needs to change. And we're back to wrap things up with our final segment of this podcast. Last but not least, the men's basketball team has played pretty well in their return from their second COVID pause. They picked up an 82 to 61 win over DePaul to end 2020 and kicked off 2021 with an impressive 65 to 54 comeback win over Marquette on January 5th. Dan, we'll start from the back and and work our way forward to, to current times here, but what were your thoughts on UConn's win over DePaul? It wasn't necessarily flashy, but it was just a good old fashioned wire to wire blowout. Yeah. I mean, I think it's nice to be back in a conference with DePaul and beat DePaul the way that you should beat DePaul every year. And until the world blows up because, you know, as we saw in the American, pretty much every or half the conference is at the level of DePaul and we still struggled with them. So when DePaul is your second worst or your worst team in the conference, you're still doing pretty good for yourselves. And yeah, it was just, I think a fun win where we haven't seen UConn just kick the crap out of anyone in a long, long time, a game where it was never close DePaul never even hinted that they were coming back. And then we just got that glorious James book night windmill that was on sports center this morning. Actually, there's nothing more exciting than some play happening and James book night opening with a just wide open lane to the basket. Cause you have absolutely no idea what was, what's about to happen. And you know, it kind of harkens back to the days of Rudy Gay, where he had just some unbelievable dunks. I think James Booknight might honestly be on a similar level as Rudy Gay with some of the dunks that he's had in his first two years. So it was just a fun win for UConn. And, you know, it probably isn't the one that makes everyone around the country's ears perk up and go like, oh, UConn's definitely back. But, you know, as someone close to UConn and who's followed them for a long time. It felt like old school UConn. Yeah. And I think this is something I saw this, I think Russ Steinberg pointed this out on Twitter that DePaul was basically right around par with the fourth or fifth or sixth best team in the American. Um, And I can't remember UConn ever really blowing out, at least recently blowing out a team of that caliber when they were in the American. So 
that was, you know, while it was, it's just DePaul and it was, you know, a pretty easy win. It was kind of one of the first barometers other than maybe that Creighton game where I looked at this team and said, wow, you know, this, this team is actually good. They're not just playing to the level of their opponents. They're not just relying on a huge game from James Booknight. This team can actually, you know, go 40 minutes and, and beat teams up and, you know, not have to worry about losing on some crazy comeback or, or something crazy happening down the stretch. But yeah, I mean, book Knight has just been phenomenal this year, right? It's his sophomore season. He had 20 points, four rebounds, three assists, and he was eight for nine from the free throw line in the win over DePaul. Um, he's obviously the, the heart and soul of this team, especially on offense, but UConn's still looking for that second scorer alongside book Knight, you know, the Robin to book Knight's Batman. And I think, Myself and, and Dan, I don't know if you felt this way at the beginning of the season. I always kind of thought that RJ Cole was going to be that guy. And I still think he can be, but he hasn't shown it yet. He had eight points against DePaul. He had only a handful of points, five points against Marquette. Hasn't really turned into that elite second score that we really thought he would be. But against DePaul, Tyrese Martin came, stepped up and rose to the occasion and led all scorers with 22 points. What, what did you think of his game against the Blue Demons? Yeah, he was great. I mean, I think he's way better than I expected him to be. I don't really know what my expectation levels were. I do remember saying earlier on this podcast that, you know, if he could be a Lasan Chroma type, that would be good. And one of you, you or Aman kind of said like, well, Lasan Chroma was really good. So that's a high bar. But, you know, I think he's been that type of player, a really solid contributor. And you know, even if he's not necessarily scoring at that clip, which as we saw against Marquette, he's not going to do that every single night, but the fact that he's at least capable is really promising. And yeah, we can maybe get into it a little bit later, but it is a little concerning that there is no second score, but we've seen from different guys throughout the season that they're at least capable of doing that. So the fact that, you know, Tyrese might not be a 20 point scorer every single night, but if he can consistently give you like five or 10 and then have these big nights every few games or every X amount of games, I don't know what the exact cadence would be, but you know, he just does a lot of good things for you on the court. And even if he's not scoring a ton of points, he's still rebounding the ball. He's still playing good defense. You know, he's just helping you win games. And that's just the exact type of player that you need on these teams that are trying to take it to the next level. And I, I think just Tyrese Martin couldn't have come at a better time for this UConn program. And I think it was just awesome to see him score at the way he did against DePaul. Yeah. It was me that said that, you know, he might not be that chromotype and I kind of stand <laughs> by that still, um, you know, he had 22 points against DePaul and looked great, but had zero against Marquette. And, you know, it's obviously just two games. It's an extremely weird season, but he's still going to be a need to be a little bit more consistent game in and game out. If he wants to be that, you know, second or third guy offensively. Um, I still, I think he's really good in transition. I don't know if he's necessarily skilled enough yet to beat somebody off the dribble or one-on-one -on -one and create his own basket. Um, like we can rely on book night to do like UConn can rely on book night to do, or even RJ Cole has created his own shot. They aren't necessarily falling just yet, but I, I think he's shown the ability that he can at least get open and get some sort of look uh, late in the shot clock. So um, that being said, I really like Martin's physicality. I think he's an elite defender and he might be the best rebounding guard that UConn has had um, in the last five to 10 years, which 
Uh, I never thought I would say because Christian Vital was the best rebounding guard I'd ever seen in my life. Um, but Martin might be just as good, if not better. So I think even if he can just contribute with a few dunks in an, an occasional three uh, in transition and play really good defense and rebound, um, that's more than enough, enough to help out this team on mo- most nights. But um, there's still going to have to be that group, like you said, it, it's probably not going to be one guy anymore. I think we've, you know, we kind of know what this team looks like, but it's going to have to be someone from Tyrese Martin, RJ Cole, Isaiah Whaley, uh, Tyler Polly, and and Brendan Adams. I think we have to throw him in that conversation because uh, against either CCSU or UHart, he was, you know, he had double digit points and, and looked like a legitimate scorer. So um, it might be a second scorer by committee type of team and that's going to be frustrating on some nights, I think, but it also makes this offense a little bit harder to defend against. So we'll see what happens, but uh, I want to jump over to the Marquette game, Dan, because that's by far and away the best win of the season. Obviously if things bounce a different way against Creighton uh, you know, maybe that's not the case, but the Huskies were down by 18 points in the second half and came back and won by 11 and won pretty handily over the last five or six minutes of that game. There was really no doubt that, UConn was going to pull away with it. So I think it's, you, we can't talk about this game without talking about Tyler Polly's performance in the second half. What did you, what did you think of that? Yeah, it was just, I mean, you, you could call it the best win of the season, but it was also just one of the most fun wins in a long time. I think it goes right up there. Maybe not necessarily the same as that Cincinnati and that Houston game last year. Cause we were at gamble for those games and there were fans in those crowds, but just, I feel like it's right up there with probably the top three UConn games since the national championship, or at least since that 2016 season that had the Jalen Adams uh, buzzer beater from three fourths of the court. But, you know, they went down big and they were just playing really poorly and they didn't really look like they wanted to be out there. And maybe this is just a tribute to the way that Hurley's gotten the guys to play and, the way the program stepped up to this point, but you know, even when they were down 18, I always kind of felt like UConn was at least going to make a run at it. I didn't know if they were going to actually come back and win it. I didn't know if they were going to get that close, but I felt like it wasn't going to end as a 25, 30 point blowout. Like it would have under Kevin Ali. I thought they were going to show some fight eventually. And, you know, Tyler Polly was just fantastic. And you can't help but be really excited for him because you know, he had just started to come on last season where he had a big game. And then if I'm not mistaken, didn't he have that like 18 points career high? And then the very next, like he didn't play again the rest of the season because he tore his ACL in practice. Am I messing up that timeline? I think it was, yeah, it was either right after the, his career high was either right after the Tulane game or it was a Tulane game or the game right before that. But yeah, he was, he was coming off of a, a stretch, a string of really strong performances before tearing his ACL. Yeah. So he really had seemed to figure it out and stepped up to the next level. And then his season ends like that. And then, you know, he comes back, he's healthy for the start of this year, but then he misses it a Paul game due to COVID protocols. And what was just so awesome to watch was that I can't think of the, like it was Shabazz-esque, I guess, where, you remember Shabazz where he would just pull up for threes and they would just start going in and he wouldn't miss for these 
big stretches of time and it was just unbelievable to watch. And that's exactly what he was like. Every single time he shot that ball, you were, I felt very, very confident it was going in and every single time it went in and just slowly that lead started to come down. And, you know, I remember getting, it got to a point, maybe you can go within single digits and it, the camera switched to the Marquette players. And one of the Marquette players was saying to his teammates, like, it's okay. We're good. We're okay. And you could just tell with the look in his face that he did not believe a single word of what he was saying. You could tell once UConn started to turn the tide, Marquette was beginning to crumble. So it was just like when that game ended in UConn won, it was just a euphoric feeling that, you know, has been lacking from UConn men's basketball recently. Yeah. It, it was an incredible performance from Polly. And I think, you know, as he continues to get more comfortable and get back into the swing of things, I think we're going to see more of this from him in what would be his fourth season in, in stores. Um, we know he's a, a very good shooter, but I was impressed with his ability to kind of read his defender pump fake and blow by for either an easy layup or to draw contact and get to the free throw line. So he's versatile. He could easily be this second scorer that we keep talking about and, and can't seem to find yet. But to me, the most impressive thing about this is that that, second half rally was pretty much done without book night who hyperextended his elbow, his left elbow towards the end of the first half uh, scored six first half points was, was a non-factor in the, in the second half. I think that's fair to say um, as he was dealing with that injury, but um, on paper before tip, UConn is clearly the better team and Marquette came out, played the Huskies hard and, you know, was up eight at half and UConn looked terrible on, on both ends, really, uh, especially on offense. And so when book night was hurt, it was really hard to see how UConn was going to prevail um, without the, you know, one of the best offensive players in the country and certainly the key player on this offense, but um, Tyler Polly came up clutch and Isaiah Whaley was phenomenal. Um, 34 minutes. He had two personal fouls. Both of those were in the last five, six minutes after being plagued with foul trouble the past few games um 15 points 13 rebounds three assists two blocks a steal oh and by the way he's stepping out and hitting three pointers now um he only took one he made it but he's been taking those longer mid-range longer to mid-range jumpers and making them at a decent clip so dan i know we were talking about this before we got started on the podcast but his growth as an offensive player he's always been a phenomenal defender um and and a great rebounder but he's always been able to guard one through five um well regarded on UConn Twitter for being a phenomenal hedge defender but his offensive growth has been phenomenal yeah it's been like unbelievable to watch considering that this time last year he pretty much was a non-factor like before Cook a Cook got hurt he was a end of the bench player that wasn't really doing anything and then once a Cook tore his Achilles he just came out of nowhere and has been pretty much phenomenal ever since like he was arguably UConn's best player down the stretch yes of last season and then he you know hasn't really necessarily had that consistency this year he's been in foul trouble a lot but he's like he's just so good in every single facet of the game like I watching that Marquette game it seems like he was at least getting a hand on every single rebound. He was just making so many plays on the defensive end. Like I talked about with Tyrese Martin, Tyrese Martin is a guy that helps you win games. Isaiah Whaley is a guy that helps you win games, but is really, really good too. And, you know, his offensive growth is just like, it's 
it's still unbelievable to me. Like I I'm always surprised when he's scoring the ball and maybe I shouldn't be at this point. Cause I'm not doubting Isaiah Whaley at all, but just my brain hasn't converted to the fact that Isaiah is this good. And, you know, just also has a very strong meme game. I should give him a shout out for that one too. He had the, they had us in the first, they not going to lie. They had us in the first half meme after the game, which was pretty funny to see. Yeah. He, he's got a very versatile game. He's just so good at when he gets the ball in the post at going straight to the basket and getting it in. He's also a very good passer down low. I don't think we necessarily give him enough credit for that. So just the fact that he went from a guy who, didn't play at all. Like you could probably count on both your hands, how many minutes he played as a sophomore to being the best player on this team, arguably behind book night. It's just an absolutely incredible trajectory. And I think it just also speaks volumes to Dan Hurley and his coaching staff. Yeah. And we've talked at length about, Oh, like this, this team is going to be dangerous when a cook, a cook comes back. And that's still true. But, um, this isn't disrespectful to, to Whaley because I think Whaley's a, a great player in his own right, but Whaley's kind of a poor man's a cook, a cook in his own right. Obviously he's not an elite shot blocker. He's a very good shot blocker. He doesn't have the size and the wingspan that a cook brings, but uh, Whaley's arguably a better defender uh, overall because of his ability to rebound and his ability to guard multiple positions and, and hedge on those ball screens that we've talked about. Um, and now he's a legitimate scoring option He's shown the ability to score with both hands in the post, stretch out and hit, you know, those elbow jumpers and the occasional three pointer. So it's going to be insane uh, when Whaley is playing the five, a cook is at the four, Tyler Polly is at the three, you know, James Booknight and RJ Cole or Tyrese Martin or Jalen Gaffney is running the point. Um, that's a scary, scary lineup. That's a, a true lineup of death where you have, multiple scores everyone can shoot the three and you know can switch on every position every position uh every possession excuse me on defense um and we've talked about line lineups of death or whatever you want to call it in the past but isaiah whaley being a legitimate scorer changes like the whole trajectory of this team in my opinion because ability to play him and a cook together uh is going to be a real matchup problem for pretty much every team in the big east Right. If a cook or not, if a cook, if Isaiah can score on like a consistent basis, like if he can be 10 and 10 every single night, that is like that. Just like you said, that takes UConn to a different level. And I'm really excited to get a cook back, like for the basketball reasons. Yeah. But he's also just such a fun player to watch and he plays with so much energy and so much emotion. It's just going to be such a boost to this team. I think when he finally gets back, whether or not he's the, like, I think it's unfair to expect him to be the player that he was in January last year in his first few games back. But yeah, I think we're really kind of starting to see what these guys are about. And you also have to remember, they haven't really played a stretch of games consistently. They've had, you know, two interruptions in their season. They've had big breaks in their schedule. If they can get like five games under their belt, I think that might actually give us more answers to who might be this team's second leading scorer, whether that's a specific person like Ty Polly or Isaiah Whaley or, you know, RJ Cole, or if it's just going to be a second scorer by committee, we're going to get a better idea of how consistent Isaiah Whaley is going to be on offense. 
they just they just have to play more games and this team's only going to get better and you know they're 28th in Ken Palm after Marquette and that's just you know it's not the end goal obviously we want to see that number get higher but you know you do have to take a moment to just really appreciate how incredible that is to be that high and almost be a top 25 team again just because of how low the low points were over the last, what is it? Five, six years. Like it's been a rough go at times. And like, there's just absolutely no denying that. Yes. UConn is back. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think the consistency and the ability to play more games is really going to help us learn a lot more about this team. Um, And so we're recording this January 7th. It'll be in your ears starting tomorrow, January 8th. I think the next week is going to be the big stretch for what, you know, to figure out what we know about this UConn team. They play at Butler on January 9th, at DePaul on January 11th, and then they come home a week from Friday uh, against Villanova on January 15th. So it'll be really interesting to see how they kind of react to playing three games in the span of, you know, less than a week after playing basically a game a week to start the season. Um, certainly it's going to change the way they prepare for teams and, and how they practice. But, um, you know, this is also going to give them the opportunity to get into more of a rhythm. They're only four or five days removed from the Marquette game. Uh, so this could be a stretch where, you know, assuming book night can be healthy and, and can play at least in some capacity against Saturday, they're going to be uh, against Butler on Saturday. They're going to be full strength with a hot Tyler Polly, who has a real opportunity to kind of get back into rhythm and play like he played, you know, before he got hurt last season. So, um, and a cook will come back at some point during this, this month of January, I think based on what Hurley said, I know there was rumors about him coming back against Marquette. Seems like he, he's probably not going to come back right away. Um, but I think it's fair to say he'll probably make his debut this month. Um, and that'll be exciting because this having, you know, everyone available, for this team uh, that's 28th in Ken Palm without probably one of the best shot blockers in the country uh, is really exciting. So I think this month, assuming things can stay relatively normal and, you know, COVID doesn't throw a wrench into all this uh, could be a really exciting month to be a Huskies fan. Yeah, absolutely. I think we just have to keep our fingers crossed that the team stays healthy especially like in the context of women's basketball, losing games and men's hockey shutting down too with students coming back at the end of this month, like this is the time to get a lot of games in because at least you've got the pseudo bubble now with your players. Once those students come back, I kind of feel like it's all bets off and, you know, issues might crop up again because I think for the most part, the entire women's bass or the entire basketball season has happened after the students were sent home for the winter break, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because they went home for Thanksgiving and the season started the day before Thanksgiving. So that's kind of a wrench in this equation that I don't think has been talked about a whole lot. So yeah, these next few weeks, just let's get some games and let's let, hopefully this team can build some positive momentum, you know, get the their basketball legs back under them, get more of a feel of the court. I mean, you know, I think RJ Cole is due for a breakout at some point. He hasn't played. He sat out all of last season. 
he really hasn't had any consistent time on the court to figure it out. And I think we've seen with a lot of transfers that have sat out recently, Rodney Purvis being an example that stands out is that there's just a very long adjustment period sometimes where it takes them a while to knock off that rust. And there's just no way that you can, you know, get back to that level that you were before you transferred after you've sat out without playing in games, practice isn't the same. So I think it'll just be really good for this team to get some consistency going in its schedule and just kind of knock out four or five games. Cause I think this team is only going to get better and better and better as the season goes on, as we've seen the last two years under Hurley teams. I totally agree, Dan. I, and you read my mind. I was about to bring up RJ Cole because uh, there, there's no doubt that he has the talent to compete at this level. And I think that's really what it is. I think it's way more of a rust thing than anything else. I was looking at his, you know, his stats, his game logs from, from this season. And he's cut down on his turnovers uh, since he had, you know, he had four against CCSU uh, and he hasn't had more than two since. And he's, you know, had games with six assists. He had five assists against Marquette um, and the scoring you know, just the shots just aren't falling right now. And I, and I think they will, he's shooting 27.3% on two point attempts, um, which is way, way below his career average. And he's definitely adjusting to, you know, playing against stronger competition and uh, everything that's weird about this season, but uh, he's certainly a talented player. And I think he's has the, you know, Hurley's backing to confidently run this offense. Uh, And I think it's just a matter of time before he breaks through and, you know, we've been talking about how it's been a carousel of second scorers and RJ Cole hasn't had his turn yet. He's going to have it soon enough. Um, he's too talented of a player to, to not have the opportunity. Uh, and the volume is there as well. So I, I think it's just a matter of time with, with Cole. And it sucks that he started the season the way that he did. But there's still a lot of basketball left for him to kind of turn it around and, and rewrite his first season at UConn. Yeah, and I think that's the case with a lot of guys, too. I mean, we saw it with Tyler Polly. I don't think he was anything special in his first few games, but had this breakout game. You know, Jalen Gaffney, I don't think has been, you know, fantastic this year, but I still am a big fan of his, and I think he will come Same. around. So I think at some point he's bound to have a big game. So I feel like it's probably just a confidence thing where if these guys finally can get their shots to fall and can get them to sh- fall quickly – they may not necessarily like score a ton, but they'll at least be contributing consistency consistently. So that's, again, it all just ties into playing more games and having more opportunities to do those things. So I think just the potential of this team is really exciting because, you know, maybe aside from the DePaul game, I don't feel like they've really been phenomenal all season long they've been good enough to win games and they've been good enough to you know come back against Marquette like they did but I still don't think they've come anywhere close to playing at you know where their baseline could be which is a very scary thing I think their ceiling is really high yeah I agree and I think the Marquette game is kind of the best uh, marker of that that we've seen so far because even without book night this team was still able to you know reach down and pull something together to try and claw back and and come back and get the win. So definitely a team that's trending in the right direction, heading into the busiest chunk of its schedule so far. I'm excited to see how it pans out. You know, you just actually reminded me of a hot take that I had. So book night definitely hurt his 
elbow. I'm not trying to deny that. I have hyperextended my elbow before, and that is an unbelievably painful injury. Like that bothered me for months after. So that was definitely bothering him. But if that game was, you know, two points uh, close, UConn was playing hard. I'm not necessarily sure book night comes out and sits for a while. I think Hurley saw the way his team was playing and went, there's no reason to, you know, risk further injury to book night here. And it's also an opportunity for the rest of the team to try and figure itself out. Go. You don't have your best score out there. So you have to go figure out how to score on your own. And UConn did that. So I think just the fact, like, I don't think it's good that book night got hurt, but I really was happy I guess that he didn't play for a big chunk of that second half because it just forced everyone else to do things without them and a Ewing effect type thing a little bit so I think that's actually going to prove very beneficial to this team going forward because as good as James Booknight is I think there's no argument that he's one of the best players in the country how good you can you know go round and round with but you don't want to be relying on him to score 40 points every single game. That's just not sustainable. I think if he can be in the 20 range mark, then UConn's in really good shape every single game. So the fact that everyone else had to figure out the offense without him, that can only help things going forward. Yeah. And I mean, I think Hurley was in that same boat along with the players, right? We saw some crazy lineups (laughs) during that Marquette (laughs) game that, you know, at least from what I was watching, didn't see a lot of offense there, but uh, eventually Hurley was able to find one that, that stuck in Tyler Polly was at the center of that. And, you know, it's, it spurred that comeback. So uh, it's not the craziest thing, Dan. I think there's a little bit, at least a little bit of truth to that, but uh, it'll be interesting to see what book Knight's elbow looks like heading into Butler and, you know, how the rest of the team reacts after a big emotional comeback victory on the road against Marquette. Yeah, I think, that elbow might be tricky just because it's his weak. It's his left one, right? Am I? Yes, correct. Yeah. So, you know, it may not necessarily bother his shooting motion, but it just kind of makes it more difficult for him to try and drive, you know, use it to dribble. But it, I think it might just be a pain tolerance thing. I, I don't know how you counteract that. I never played division one basketball to know what the training situation looks like. If, Um, like he can get a shot for that or or something, but, you know, I don't imagine he can do any more damage to it. So as long as he can handle the pain and they could figure out a way to lessen it, whether it's with a sleeve or with ice during timeouts or whatever it is, he, I think he should be able to play through and hopefully it doesn't impact him too much because it would just be such a shame for him to be, you know, I think one of the most talented players that has been at UConn in this decade, well, in the last decade, to have this type of season get shortened by a stupid injury like that. Yeah, totally agree. Hopefully, you know, he's, he's able to rest up and and be close to full strength as we head into the busy stretch of the season, but we will see. And it's been a pleasure doing this podcast with you today, Dan, but we'll wrap things up and we will talk to you all soon.